You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Aisha Roscoe, in for Sam Sanders. So as a White House correspondent for NPR, I spend a lot of time at the White House, and I run across a lot of interesting people there, to say the least. But one of the people that really stood out to me was Brittany K. Barnett, a lawyer working to transform the criminal justice system. In 2018, Brittany was advocating to the White House on behalf of her client, Alice Marie Johnson. At the time, Alice was a 63-year-old great-grandmother serving a life sentence in prison without parole for a first-time federal drug offense. The only hope, the only possibility for Alice's release was through an act of clemency by then-President Donald Trump, which he did once he heard from someone famous. I, I, I knew I had an attorney call, but I still didn't know what it was. And when they all came on, then I heard Kim Kardashian's voice. And she was the one who told me that I was that it had happened, that I was free, that I was, I was going to rejoin my family. <laughs> the Kim Kardashian. Kim K. had learned about Alice and advocated directly to President Trump for her release. And Brittany, she felt all right about the media attention. I always kept my focus lasered on Alice's freedom. And I was elated, we were all elated that Kim Kardashian was was a part of the team, that she was dedicated enough to fly across the country to have this in-person meeting for Alice. I mean, it was all remarkable that she was even using her platform for such a critical, important issue of our time. Still, pretty much the only thing anyone could talk about was Kim Kardashian. People were so blinded by Kim Kardashian West spotlight, whether it was positive or negative, that they couldn't see past her spotlight, you know, to know that if Kim hadn't have gone to the White House, then this great-grandmother would die in prison. People like Alice Johnson, sentenced to life in prison for federal drug offenses, getting them free is the mission of Brittany's work with the Buried Alive Project. And it's a central piece of her memoir called A Knock at Midnight, a story of hope, justice, and freedom. In this chat, Brittany and I talk about the many ways the war on drugs has never ended, how it's ruined the lives of so many incarcerated people, and what it's going to take to even start to make things right. I think some people may be unaware or may think that the quote-unquote war on drugs is, they may think that, that that's a relic of the 80s and the 90s. Um, but obviously there are people who are still very much locked up. Um, very, you know, and that a lot of these laws, even the ones that have been somewhat addressed uh, in some changes, have not fully addressed even the discrepancies that you're, you're talking about. Can you talk a bit about uh, what has changed in federal law and what has not? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll start by saying that the utter failure of the war on drugs is still very much at play, even in 2021. And it started in the mid 80s, you know, with the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which implemented mandatory minimums, which implemented this 100 to 1 sentencing ratio between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. And what that means is, Aisha, you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have only five grams of crack cocaine. And we're going to receive the same sentence in prison. 
And it's not lost on anyone today, and especially in the late 80s, that more affluent white people were using powder cocaine and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color, in particular black communities. And this law had a racially biased impact, a disparity in sentencing to where even today, nearly 70% of the people in federal prison for drug offenses are people of color. And we really have to have people think about time and what that means. We throw around numbers and sentences like 15 years and 20 years as if it's $15 or $20. 15 years is a very long time. My mother served two and a half years in prison, and that was a very long time. And I think once we really stop to feel that, to feel time, that hopefully it opens hearts and minds in a way that can help us shift the paradigm. Most of my clients are serving life sentences. There's no parole in the federal system. Alice Johnson was set to die in prison. That's the reality of it. She was serving the same amount of time in prison as the Unabomber. You know, that was something that would always get to me when um, President Trump, former President Trump, uh, you know, because I covered him, he would talk about Alice's case and and he almost would underplay it because he would say she served 20 years. I think she had about 10 more. And I would always go, no, she had life. She was going to <laughs> die. It was like it almost was like he didn't get like what he had done. Exactly. And I think a lot of people think life, they think you know, a very violent crime or murder. I don't know that people really think about drug offenses and you getting a a life sentence. I agree. And I heard, you know, former President Trump say that several times, you know, like Alice had 10 years left or she didn't have much longer left. And I'm like, does he really not realize she had life? (laughs) You know, that she was said to die (laughs) in prison. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And it, it, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. But the reality of it is there are people still buried alive under these life sentences, under 30-year, 40-year sentences. And it is both morally and economically unjustifiable that it continues to happen. Locking Alice Johnson up for 22 years or for the rest of her life, it did nothing to stop... <laughs> the spread of drugs in America. And so we really have to reimagine what justice looks like for sure. So I covered the the First Step Act, which, you know, the former president and Congress really talked a lot about. And they dealt with some of these issues. So that crack disparity that you talked about, there was a law passed during the Obama administration that lowered the disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, but didn't get rid of it entirely. But that was not retroactive, right? And so the, the First Step Act did make that change to the disparity retroactive. So people in prison could petition to get out under the change in the law. What what else did the First Step Act do on some of these issues? Yeah, the First Step Act, it was a great first step. In addition to the changes you just mentioned, there were three other sentencing reform provisions contained in the First Step Act, one of them being related to the Three Strikes Law. There are people like my client, Ralph O'Neill, who under the new law would be walking out of the door and he's serving instead his 14th year of a life without parole sentence. The frustrating part for me 
as it relates to the First Step Act and many of those sentencing reform provisions is that that change in the law related to the three strikes law was not made retroactive, which means it's not reaching back to help people sentence before the First Step Act was put into law. So you have people like Ralph O'Neill who are serving life sentences today under yesterday's drug laws. And that is mind-blowing for me because if the law is wrong today, it was wrong yesterday. So we have many more steps to take. Coming up, Brittany describes how her family inspired her to transform criminal justice. On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about what we're watching, listening to, or just trying to figure out. Like what concert films you should watch if you miss live music. And great books to read, alone or in your book club. All of that in around 20 minutes every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I want to go back to your memoir and and talk a bit about what led you to your work uh, on criminal justice reform. Um, I, I want to go way back to the beginning, to your childhood. What I was struck by when I was reading it was kind of was how in so many ways your childhood was very idyllic with your extended family playing in the country in East Texas. I'm from North Carolina, so you know <laughs> I could relate to that. You going fishing, all yes. of that. But beneath all of that, there was a, a tragedy. Your mom was falling into a, an addiction to crack and ultimately going to prison. How did living in, in, in both of those realities shape you, having the family and then also dealing with this, what was going on with your mother? Yes, you know, it was definitely nuanced, complex. You know, I use a quote in my book. I open my book with a Nikki Giovanni quote from her poem, Nikki Rosa. And she says, black love is black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was quite happy. And I use that quote because I wanted to show that my life was just that. We had so much love around us from extended family, my mom even, you know, that we knew we were loved unconditionally. We were happy. That does not take away from the fact that it was very challenging to grow up with a mother who had a drug addiction. But the two can coexist. Joy and pain can coexist. And I really wanted to show that in the book through my own story and show that as Black people, we're not just this monolithic struggle story. You know, we are complex and nuanced and joy and pain can coexist because it did in my life. And also, even though my mother went to prison, seeing my mother find something deep within herself to become sober is gives me a strength that's out of this world that I can't even touch with words. Coupled with the love from my family, you know, it empowers me to this day. I want to talk to you as a kind of an overachiever to another overachiever. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> reading reading your story, I did see shades of myself. You know, you were an A student, did great in school. You were helping to look after your younger sister. Uh, now you had much more of a social life than I did. I didn't have a social life in high school. That, that wasn't me. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I definitely I didn't get had that. a social life. But, in my high school. <laughs> yeah, see, you had it. Yeah, you had it. So you had more going on. But did you feel a pressure? 
pressure to be the best at everything? Like what, what was driving you? You know, it's a great question. And it's something I've thought about before, you know, sometimes, you know, people have asked, is this just an innate drive to succeed? Or was there something around you, you know, that, that drove you to succeed? And I think the answer is a mixture of, of both. I think a lot, if I'm honest with myself, I can say that having a mother addicted to drugs drove me to succeed because I knew that was a path I didn't want to take. But I also know that I had this loving extended family around me, right? Through my dad who always poured into me and let me know that I could do anything I set my mind to, you know, and who always encouraged me to write down my thoughts and visions and manifest it and to know that the power lies in me, you know, or to my grandpa, you know, we talked about fishing, being from rural East Texas in the country, we would go fishing a lot. My grandparents had a pond in front of their house. And I remember going fishing with my grandpa and and him saying, you know, listening to me vent, you know, my teenage woes, whatever I was going through at 14 and him listening so intently to me. And once I finished and he would say, it ain't nothing but a step for a step a big girl. You just got to keep on stepping. <laughs> and so I just would yeah. always remember to just keep on stepping. Keep on stepping. Yeah. I mean, how, were you really afraid that you might end up in the same position as your mother? Or did you know in yourself that that wasn't the route that you were going to take? I don't think I was afraid I was, but I knew I didn't want to. Mm. So I think yeah. it's what you said, the latter. Like I knew in myself that that was a route I didn't want to take because I seen the devastation that that it caused. And ultimately, you know, you were listening to your, your grandfather. You end up stepping on into law school after doing some business stuff. But you were focused on corporate law. Mm-hmm. And then a, a childhood friend of yours gets life in prison for a drug offense. And you start looking into these uh, drug war cases. And you saw some disturbing trends. One, one thing that really stood out to me in your book and that surprised me, even though I've been covering this stuff, uh, is is this talk about ghost dope, quote unquote ghost dope, mm. and how people can get locked up um, and charged with these massive amount of drugs, but the prosecutors don't have to have physical evidence of it. I think people think it's like the movies where you have like a warehouse of drugs and then they pull up and the police see the briefcase of money and that's how, that's what the case is. But that's doesn't, reading your book opened my eyes to the fact that that's not really the case with a lot of these drug cases. It's definitely not the case with a lot of the drug cases. Most of them, in fact. And I had the same idea of what this looked like to go federal, you know, to have a federal case. I just assumed that, oh, wow, this has to be a person who's tied to international drug trafficking or cartels, you know, or major kingpins, only to learn once I got into law school and started really looking into these cases is this isn't the case at all in many of these situations. And I learned about this concept of ghost dope. Taking the case of my client, Sharonda Jones, for example, who was serving life without parole for her first ever conviction, felony or otherwise, Sharonda Jones had never even received a traffic ticket before. And so she utilizes her constitutional right to go to trial, whereas most everyone else on the case pled guilty. 
And several of the people who pled guilty chose to testify against Sharonda in exchange for lesser sentences for themselves, including the drug supplier that she worked for. People were testifying, oh, Sharonda Jones purchased this much drugs. Sharonda Jones served this much drugs. And there were no drugs. There was no physical evidence, no controlled buys, no undercover agents, no large sums of money, no photo surveillance, absolutely nothing. Sharonda Jones was held accountable for 24 kilograms of crack cocaine based solely on the testimony of people testifying against her in, for reduced sentences. Yeah, and I, I'm reading about Sharonda, and Sharonda is really, when your memoir, you talk about Sharonda as a case that really seemed to change the course of your life. Um, meeting her, you you know, you learned about her when you were looking up these cases, and you did what I think most people wouldn't do is you read a story that seemed unjust and then you didn't just leave it there. Like what, what made that difference for you? Like to, to not just read the sad story, but then to take the next step to try to help. You know, there was something about Sharonda Jones's case that just tugged at my soul. I came across her case in law school. I was going to Right, I was writing a paper for a critical race theory course, and I knew I was going to include my childhood friend, Keon Mitchell, who had gotten a life sentence, but I wanted to include a woman too, because by now my own mother had went to prison, and I knew that incarceration was impacting women on a tremendous scale. And so I did a Google search, like woman federal prison life, and Sharonda Jones's case pulled up, and I saw so much of myself in her. She was also a black daughter of the rural South. And it was just something about her case that that truly tugged at my soul. And I knew that even though I was going to practice corporate law, even though I knew next to nothing about criminal law, that I was going to somehow, some way, free Sharonda Jones. And this was something that reading the book kind of stood out to me as just how wild um, this war on drugs was. But when you were talking about, um, you know, Chuck Norris, the actor, Walker, Texas Ranger, Chuck Norris, that one, makes an appearance in this book. He helped the police carry out a raid, I think, in Sharonda's hometown that ultimately ended up leading to her arrest because it it caught someone else up who was connected to Sharonda. But at that part of the book, my notes was just Chuck Norris and a question mark. Like, right. what? how is Chuck <laughs> Norris participating in police raids? Like, how does, how does that happen? What, what, what was going on? Make it make sense. Make it make sense. <laughs> the, I, they were actually shooting the show, you know, around the time in Texas, the Walker, uh-huh. Texas Ranger show. Wow. And uh-huh. somehow Chuck Norris was floating, you know, as a, a reserve officer for the Terrell Police Department. And he participated in this drug raid, you know, where dozens of people were arrested early one morning in, in Terrell, Texas. And he was kicking indoors. <laughs> Actor kicking indoors on the side. 
I, you know, but the, it it kind of plays into the idea that so much of this, especially back then, was this idea it, that made it seem like the drug war was like a movie and the police were going in and they were getting the bad guys and, you know, hauling them away. Like, that was the view that was being put out there. Yes, it was romanticized. It was like a fetish of seeing mm-hmm. Black lives destroyed, especially as it related to the crack epidemic, you know, where we saw people being demonized and criminalized from drug users to people who sold drugs, you know, and the part that we can't ignore is how different it looks now that we have the opioid epidemic. They were both epidemics, you know, they were both destructive in their in their own way, but Now we look at it rightfully so as a public health crisis. It was a public health crisis in the late 80s, early 90s as well when it involved crack cocaine. But because it was so demonized and vilified, you know, people 30 years later are still paying the price with their lives. Coming up, Brittany talks about the need to pressure Congress to act. On NPR's Consider This podcast, we don't just catch you up on the news. We help you make sense of what's happening, whether it's how to tackle the challenges that come with pregnancy during a pandemic or how to understand the crisis unfolding along our southern border. We'll fill you in for 15 minutes every weekday. Listen now to Consider This from NPR. When you think about what needs to happen next, and you're working to help make systemic change through getting these people out, what does Congress need to do next? What and that, and you said earlier that Congress is the people, so people need to put pressure on Congress to act. What should they be, you know, trying to get Congress to do? The people should absolutely be applying pressure to members of Congress to prioritize transforming the criminal legal system. The very first step has to be making those laws contained in the First Step Act retroactive. Now, that should be a no-brainer. It is shocks the conscience to think that we can change a law in this country and it should not be mandatory that these laws are retroactive. I think, you know, Congress needs to take a very hard look at the MORE Act that was introduced last year and hopefully it gets reintroduced again this year that decriminalizes marijuana in this country. I am even hopeful that they'll push forward to legalization of marijuana in this country. I have people in the Buried Alive Project who are serving life without parole for cannabis. And as my client Pharrell Scott would say, people are selling marijuana today and getting a life savings. I sold marijuana and I got a life sentence. And I would also, you know, beyond Congress, I would like to see this administration, the Biden administration, reinvigorate the clemency process and really normalize clemency in a way where it may not make national headlines every time, but that it is having a national impact on communities and people's lives. And so I I am hopeful that we see many more clemencies uh, to come. 
Is there something, I know you talked a bit about this earlier, but, you know, how people, you know, will talk about years in prison or say it's only five years, it's only, you know, 10 years or whatever, but it, and, and they don't understand how much every day in prison affects people. But what is something that you think people don't understand about the U.S. prison system that you wish they knew? I wish people knew just how the U.S. prison system affects entire families and communities. When one person goes to prison, the entire family goes to prison. And I wish people knew just how much untapped genius is behind bars, the human capital, the ingenuity that this nation really needs to thrive. And it has me just really pondering and sitting with this vision of creating sustainable liberation. How do we create sustainable liberation for this untapped genius so that they can be put in positions to thrive and not merely survive? And that is something that I feel the general public does not know. And I wish that they did. Just the amount of human potential that is wasting away behind bars. Thanks again to Brittany K. Barnett. She's a lawyer and entrepreneur working to transform criminal justice. Her memoir, A Knock at Midnight, is out now. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Andrea Gutierrez with help from Liam McBain. It was edited by Jordana Hopeman. All right, listeners, Sam Sanders is back on Friday. Thanks for hanging out with me. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Stay safe. Take care.